Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. I'm Dr. Heidi with my mom, Dr. Gloria, and we're talking today about finding hope and healing after loss, and our second guest is Steve Riles. Steve Riles has overcome substance abuse and dealt with the loss of a dad, aunt, and sister-in-law. Steve attributes his current health and happiness to his belief that healthy, safe, and appropriate sharing of feelings is key to a wonder-filled life. He is the author of Drunk with Wonder. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you very much, Heidi and Gloria. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, your book, what a story you've got at the very beginning. You've got to tell our audience about your story. You were really totally wigged out on drugs, right? Wigged out, yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> were the product uh, of the 60s. <laughs> right. Yes, I was, and, and even though there's the old adage that if you can remember the 60s, you didn't go through them, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't buy that one for a minute because I did live through them, and uh, I do remember a lot of things. This is a story about me, uh, you know, out of control with drugs and alcohol. Well, not so much alcohol at the time, but really, really with drugs, particularly um, intravenous drug use with methamphetamine speed, which is still a scourge in many parts of the country. Now, you were in Berkeley, right? I, w- I had not gotten to Berkeley. I mean, I'd been in and out of Berkeley at the time. I was. Uh, I had spent a lot of time in Haight-Ashbury. Uh-huh. And, uh, but the, at the time of the story of the opening of the book, I was living down in Riverside uh, in Southern California. Right. And uh, I, I was just really getting, I'd been shooting drugs for about a year uh, on and off doing what they call speed runs. And uh, I just kind of had to generate it down. I had, uh, started as a high school dropout, but I had started Riverside Community College, and then you know I was just doing so many drugs I wasn't going in any of my classes. And uh, a dear, dear friend of mine uh, who had been living with me for a while and then had moved out, he got really sick of what I was doing to myself and, and didn't want to join in. He came out to visit me and kind of do what we now would call an intervention. And he found me. I had just shot up. I had forgot he was coming. I was lying on my bed, pretty. Immobile, my heart was probably going 200 beats a minute, and I had tunnel vision. And somehow I used to call that fun. And um, he got very angry, uh, and I understand, of course, now that he was very concerned, very scared for me. And he basically gave me an ultimatum that I needed to either clean up my act or that was it for our friendship. And uh, he really gave me food for thought. He also uh, gave me, and I... They always say this when I, I'm on an interview. Don't try this at home, kids. Uh, but he gave me a, a very large dose of LSD mm. and uh, said, this is either going to kill you or cure you right now. I don't much care which. And so I soon, and he took, stormed off, you know, slammed the door, just stormed out. He had driven an hour just to come see me. And so pretty soon I found myself, really high on the LSD, and I had this out-of-body experience where I was kind of floating along, kind of bumping against the ceiling like I was a balloon. And I noticed that I could roll over and look down at myself. And uh, my friend was right. I was killing myself. I was dying. I was emaciated and filthy, and my teeth were rotting. It was not a pretty sight, to say the least. Mm-hmm. 
and I made a choice right there. I really got it that I had a choice. I could, you know, I could come down into my body, shoot some more speed, and literally die. And so, th- so you had that turning point. It was a, it was just massive. So I, I really had that incredibly stark, immediate. Am I going to live or am I going to go? Am I going to stay or am I going to? How go? old were you then? I was just eighteen. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so I may, obviously made the decision to stick around. I came down from that experience. Got up the next morning, called my parents. They came and got me. I moved home. Wow. I started hanging out with my friend again. He was so tickled that you know I had that he'd really helped. That it, it really, in a sense, worked. And I. In a very short period of time, I was, you know, going to the dentist and getting, you know, my my teeth cleaned up, and uh, I found a job, and I started seek having getting therapy, and then three weeks after that intervention, intervention, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. Oh wow! And I was very close to the family. I had been hanging out with them a lot. Uh, his sister and and. His mom, we were all had all become good friends, and there's this whole crew of people that would hang out at their house. They had a color TV, and we'd watch Star Trek together and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. back in the day. And I, you know, one of the things that happened as a result of that is I watched that family disintegrate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I now understand and and write about it in Drunk with Wonder that the family had no sense of how to deal with their feelings with all of the very strong emotions, the grief and the anguish and so on. And so the mother blamed the father. Mm-hmm. Uh, the father started drinking heavily and mm-hmm. was dead within a few years himself. Uh, the younger children all got heavily involved in drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol and, I mean, just, just exploded out into uh, craziness because of the grief and they just didn't have any channels, no models of healthy and responsible, safe expression of their feelings, no idea that that feeling our feelings is something that's even healthy. And right. what about you? Did you did you go back into the drug use to cope with your feelings or I discovered the it? joy of alcohol. Okay. Actually I within a couple of months, although I never touched speed again. Mm-hmm. Never shot any drugs again. Within a couple of months uh, somebody gave me a, a cold beer on a hot Southern California afternoon after I'd been pulling weeds in their yard for several hours. And it wasn't long before I, ju- I got into, you know, let's face it, alcohol is one of the most profound numbing agents in the world. Right. Uh, that's, I'm sure, why it's so popular. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I, I kind of got involved in alcohol and then used alcohol to excess for much of the following 33 years. I'm, I'm proud and, and grateful to be able to say I'm eight years sober uh, this month. Good for you. Uh, and so, anyhow... That was yeah, what so, I was So let's talk a little bit for our audience out there because I've got an email that I want to bring up with you, and I, I usually don't bring quite up this early in the show, but but I think that um, you've got some wisdom from this woman because uh, her name's Wanda. She's from Livermore, and she sent us an email, and she said, and by the way, everybody, we love to get your emails, and and we got, get a lot of them, answer them on the blog, and but occasionally we'll pull one out for the show, and I thought this was pretty good for this show. Uh, my 16-year-old son was just busted at the airport for having a small amount of pot. I talked our way out of it, but I am really embarrassed. He says it's no big deal. His brother was killed in a skiing accident two years ago, and I don't know if he just is reacting to the loss or if he is really doing drugs. I can't seem to get my head together on this 
uh, any ideas? Wanda from Livermore. So what do you think of, about this, given your background and your experience uh, about a, a kid who's saying it's no big deal that he's got pot at the airport? Well, I mean, in and of itself, uh, you know, pot as a recreational substance is, is certainly, in my opinion, less uh, dangerous and less uh, ultimately unhealthy than alcohol, for example, or cigarettes. Um, but it's still almost, an, I mean, you know, who am I? I, I? I can just give you an intuitive hit that yeah. chances are really good that the sun has not worked through the emotions and the grief and the anger uh, that are inev- um, virtually inevitably a part of losing a sibling. Yeah, or, well, one of the things Heidi, I always says is you not only lose your sibling, but you also lose the parents you know. So Wanda may not be in such good shape herself. Yes, and it's entirely possible that, you know, bless her heart, she may be doing a little bit of, uh, of projecting. And, of course, we don't know the family dynamics, so we don't know whether... So know, being a kid, though, when you were 16 years old, what could your parents have done? Are they, you know, what do you suggest to parents who've got kids that are, that are the biggest, using... The biggest single thing I could suggest? Mm-hmm. To listen. Mm-hmm. To listen unconditionally. Mm-hmm. To, to find a way to... And oftentimes, there has there is a distancing, and, and it's part of the natural order of things that children will find, you know, create some distance from their parents as they individuate and and become adults. But there's a way in which sometimes kids don't think that their parents really hear them, and they don't trust their parents to listen without trying to fix or change or be an authority or be an expert. They just want somebody to listen. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Just, you know, not to fix, not to change, not to do anything other than to unconditionally love with an open heart and let them work through it. But my guess is, <clears throat> in this culture, as I'm sure you're acutely aware, very few people have any healthy models for how to deal with grief. That's why you're doing what you're doing. Right, and, and people so, are hungry for hope. They really are. are they chances are, as a teenager, <clears throat> uh, and, and as a boy, <clears throat> he doesn't have any role models for healthy emotional expression. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, men are supposed to, what's the phrase now I heard recently? Man up. <laughs> I love that. Right? Man tough up. up. You know, tough it up. Uh, yeah. You know, tough stiff upper up. lip. Off the pain. Never let them see you sweat. Never show your fear. You know, what all that is essentially saying is that if you exhibit any emotional vulnerability, you become a target. Mm, good and, thought. Either yeah. a lecture, being lectured by the parents, yeah. Right. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so um, in the sense that he's, he's, he's got a small amount of pot at an airport, well, at the very least, he's guilty of not thinking clearly, right. not thinking that through, like, oh, yeah, I can get away with that. That's typical. That was typical for me as a teenager as well. I, I was clueless about a lot of things, and I think that's part of part for the course, and uh, we do what we okay. can as parents to love them unconditionally no matter what, but uh, what could my parents have done when I was 16? They could have listened to me uncritically. Um, I was kind of at war with my dad. I mean, he was trying to put his thumb down and and make me do things the way he wanted he thought they should be done. He was a 
you know, a, a button-down banker, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> and and I was a I was a kid who was already protesting the war and prote- protesting the draft, and 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 passionately felt as though things were very wrong in the country, and that we and we radically needed to change. And he was concerned whether I wore argyle socks or not. <laughs> I mean, we're just on different planets, and. Um, after he grounded and, and me I, for general see, principles, I, would teams, I'll, uh, I'll I be with the parents and just say right out with the family. You know, it's really hard being a teen. It's a tough time, and I mean, it's it's a tough place to be. And you've been through a lot as a teen, you know, and kind of show the teens some empathy because oftentimes they feel like nobody is acknowledged and validated what they're going through. Yes, yeah. I can tell you, Heidi, that uh, I've, I've been a volunteer and worked uh, a lot with a, an organization called Challenge Day. Uh, based in the Bay Area, but they're all over this country and in Canada. And they, we've been putting on full-day programs for 20 years. I've been involved for 14, where we go into schools and give kids an opportunity to learn a little bit about emotional literacy and, and to not be so afraid of their feelings and to strategize healthy and responsible ways to feel their feelings. Well, and I've been great, told, I've been great told, idea. How do people find out about Challenge Day? Mm-hmm. Oh, on it's, the net, it's very or easy. Can you challenge, do it in your school? Day, How does it go? Challengeday.org. That's just challenge, C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G-E, Challenge Day, D-A-Y, all one word, .org. They just brought a book out uh, called Be the Hero You've Been Waiting For. It's just mm-hmm. coming out now. I was uh, blessed to be a little bit of a part of that um, creation, um, friends with the founders and uh, what, I, what I'm saying is that this is a one way for parents and children and, and teens to come together because they're always looking for adult volunteers to go into, these, into the schools. And I, I can tell you, having been in dozens of these days over the years, that I've been told repeatedly by young people, you're uh, speaking to me because you know, adults become small group leaders and mm-hmm. it's beautifully scripted and all that. I've had kids tell me over and over again, I feel like you're the first adult man who's ever listened to me, ever in my life. Wow. And that's heartbreaking, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking with Wanda, uh, where's dad? And, and is if dad's not around, is there another male she can bring into um, his life, which might be helpful? I don't want to leave Wanda hanging out there. I want to thank you for your email. And I also want to say, Wanda, one of the things that I recommend to people often, if you're not sure about what's going on in your whole family, ask somebody who you admire, a friend, who you admire how they're raising their kids. Um, ask them, to say, you know, I, I, you know, I've lost this child. Um, I just don't know if we're going the right way. Can, what do you think? And, and you can, can get some pretty good advice from friends. They may just say, you know, he's a really good kid and I wouldn't worry about it, but, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, get some help. Reach out. Steve, before uh, we get on with some other topics, I wanted to tell people I love your book. It's, it's an amazing book, and it's written, I don't know, I call it kind of ultra ego. You're talking your inner self or whatever is asking questions, and, and you're answering them. Is that how it goes? Or you're asking questions, and your inner heart is answering them? Right. It's a wonderful book, and it, it's just so full. We couldn't even begin to approach uh, all the great things that you've got in this book, and great advice, and great ideas. It's a, and it's a fun read too. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of interesting some of the questions that you ask and all that. I enjoyed it. But uh, how would people get a hold of your book? I met Sim Amazon, and you have a website. Uh, yeah, it's certainly available on Amazon, and I have a website which is drunkwithwonder.com. It's the title of the book, Drunk with Wonder: Awakening to the God Within. 
and uh, drunkwithwonder.com. Uh, there's a toll-free 800 number. People can order the book. It's 800-247-6553. That's 800-247-6553. And we also have a great audio book version okay. that's available on iTunes or audible.com. All right. Well, there you go. Now, uh, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, we were talking about, uh, during the break a little bit about when your dad died, you felt a profound grief, but you were saying it wasn't suffering? Is that... Yes, and I want to I want to preface because it Because I know saying, there are a lot of people out there suffering, seriously I, I, I suffering I want to preface right it now. by saying my father <clears throat> uh, suffered through a long decline and, uh, you know, dementia and had kind of checked out from any sense that we could have that there was someone there we could connect with for years before his body actually past. Uh, so I'd had years of, of going through grief and so on, but the, one of the things that was interesting to me was that I experienced intense, we, it, I, I experienced intense emotion, and uh, I realized that we've been taught in this culture to label that intense emotion as grief, because it's, a, it's an intense emotion that it comes with the passing of a loved one. And then to say that that grief is a cause of suffering and is really to be endured and is something we want to get past and we don't want to talk about. It's one of the great taboos in our culture to really talk openly about the grieving process. And what I found was that when I, through the, the work I've done and the things I've learned over the years, uh, I dove into my grief. And I had an extremely intense experience, but I didn't notice or experience any suffering. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hurting. Grief is not something that creates hurting in and of itself. It's an incredibly intense and, I, I will say, incredibly rich experience. I don't wish it on anyone. However, if you're around on the planet very long, you will experience it. It's part of what it's like to be here, and rather than being afraid of it, which I think is where, where the suffering comes from, when we try to keep from feeling our feelings, we're we damning up this isn't the way it should be. We're damming up our emotions. We're damming up the energy, and it's you know we spend all of our life passion trying not to feel our feelings. You know, I think I, I say to people, try to lead with your heart, because yep. when you get your head involved, it's going to try to figure out how it wasn't supposed to be. Right, and what's wrong with the situation, and, and, and it, it can that's feel... what suffering is, trying to redo. But I will tell you, uh, when you lose a child or when you really have a profound you know, loss out of sequence, there is a lot of suffering, and, and you throw a tantrum, basically, and the mind is not going to stop. You know, it's like the drunken monkey, and for a while, our audience out there is, you know, there is suffering, and, and people say, oh, you should meditate, but you know what? Your mind is just going 90 miles an hour for, you know, for a while, and then then it calms down and people can start moving, you know, into more, less suffering. I would yeah, there is, a, there is a level of shock, without question. My, um, my wife's younger sister uh, died in an automobile accident on Valentine's Day last year. Wow. So we just had a relatively recent, very intense experience of losing someone suddenly. Uh, and, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we went... With the conscious work that my wife and I do and went down there, of course, right away and we're with the family and her mom and 
uh, the husband and and so on. And uh, we were very strong and very powerful and uh, very helpful for, with everybody, and people couldn't understand how we could be that way. And we talked about all the training we'd had. We've also trained as chaplains and so on, and um, and we're, worked with with uh, death and dying and families who are going through grief. So we've had a significant amount of experience with this. And yet what we noticed, my wife and I noticed, a couple of months down the road is that we were having some disconnect and some different experiences that weren't really very, didn't feel very good to us. And we finally were able to sit down and go, wow, here's places where we haven't been dealing with our own grief, even though we teach this stuff. Right. There are places where we got disconnected. And so I have so much compassion and, and, uh, and empathy for everyone who goes through this process. It's, it's, I don't know of a more intense process in the world. Now, if you had a one piece of advice before we close the show for folks or one thought, what would it be? You know, I'd say trust. I'd say trust in the universe that even though you don't understand this loss and it feels like the harshest thing in the world, somewhere, somehow, you will come to a peace. You can come to a peace with it. Some people don't. Some people stay bitter and angry the rest of their lives. But it doesn't have to be that way. No, there's hope. And if you're not feeling hope now, lean on ours. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Steve Riles. It's been a delight having you on. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.